One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Hello and welcome once again to another episode of the tech podcast, Rulor Magazine. I am your host, Dan Cavallari, uh, and I am here in Colorado today. Uh, and it's starting, you can start to feel a little bit of fall in the air, even though it's only August. It actually snowed up in the mountains today. Uh, so it's, it's, it's that time of year where uh, a lot of people are sort of transitioning from road to gravel and sort of uh, thinking about the upcoming season and, and where they want to be on their bikes. And luckily for us, there are so many incredible options for both on the pavement, off the pavement, uh, mixing the two. We're just, we're living in this, this incredible era of bicycle design. And it got me to thinking, uh, you know, I've, I've been, I've been sick this week, so I've, I've been doing a lot of thinking and not a whole lot of writing, <laughs> um, which is why I sound a little congested, but, uh, it got me to thinking about how brands, uh, start to develop ideas. You know, you have an idea and how does that idea get from idea to finished product? I mean, there's a lot of steps in between. I've been to a lot of different facilities and, and I think every brand has their own way of doing it. Um, and, but there's, there's some brands that really just have some unique, uh, resources at their disposal and not to mention a unique history. Uh, and so today on the line, all the way from Switzerland, I have Stefan Christ, uh, and Stefan is uh, a longtime, uh, member of the BMC, uh, development team. Stefan, how's it going? Hello, Dan. Very good. Thanks for, for having me today. Yeah, of course, and thanks, thanks for chatting. And Stefan, what's your what's your official title over there at BMC now? You've been there a long time. Uh, today, I'm working as uh, head of R and D, uh, overlooking uh, basically, let's say, the development of all products that carry a BMC logo. No pressure at all. <laughs> Very low pressure role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's quite. It's quite a wide uh, field now with all the e-bikes and components, but. It's good. Always do challenges. It's great. And the last time I was over there in Switzerland, uh, Stifu's, Stifu is your nickname. Uh, Stifu's job was essentially to rip my legs off up every climb in Switzerland. <laughs> uh, Stifu's a monster on the bike, as I learned the hard way. Uh, <laughs> I was there, uh, was that? Boy, that was two years ago now, I think, maybe more, uh, for the launch of the BMC Earth, uh, BMC's uh, gravel bike. And you know, Stifu, that that was a, an eye-opening launch because at that time, gravel was just starting to come into its own as a category. The bikes were really getting honed, and, and you guys launched the Earth, which is a beautiful bike. Um, I assume since then, BMC has been developing and plotting what's next. 
Can you talk a little bit about what you see as the next steps in in gravel bike development? Sure, sure. I I recall uh, I remember this uh, ride very well. I think it was really uh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> one of the best launches we ever did. Also because it was the first time we launched actually a, a gravel bike. So the Earth was our very first development in in this segment, and uh, we really wanted to. I would say. Uh, do something that is a bit out of the convention back in the day. Um, we were always talking about Gravel Plus because we had the idea of making a very capable gravel bike, which uh, yeah showed in the geometry concept and a couple of other things. Um, we introduced the micro travel technology on the rear end of the Urs bike. And this is definitely something that we we fall in love with as a, as a concept. And uh, we have been working very hard over the last uh, years to find solution uh, for this. Also to, to have this on the front end, because of course, uh, comfort, the more you ride uh, off-road is important. So um, yeah, my team have worked very hard to, to work on additional MTT solutions, which uh, we will see in, I think, in a couple of months from now in the market. So keep your eyes open is what you're saying. And, and for those of you listening, if you're not familiar with the, uh, the MTT, uh, it came over from the mountain bike side, correct? The, uh, the elastomer-based um, connection uh, on the, the, the stays, the, the seat stays, correct? Yeah, we introduced this on the Team Elite, uh, which was our cross-country hardtail. And there, the intention was to reduce riders' uh, fatigue as a primary goal. And uh, yeah, we have discovered that it it's also gonna gonna give uh, good benefits, performance benefits on gravel bikes, and that's why we stick to the concept. One of the things I learned uh, pretty quickly when I visited the facility in Switzerland is that uh, BMC is is pretty uniquely set up to uh, develop. Take, take, take bikes from concept to development. Uh, the facility itself has a lot of um, aspects that um, perhaps a lot of other brands don't have. I mean, start, I, mean I think our tour there started in the museum uh, where you have all these bikes uh, from, from past pros and you, know, you, you walked us through uh, some of the technology there and, and what worked, what didn't, what we changed over time. Um, and that was an interesting place to start because uh, BMC has a very long history of innovation, and that, mag- that museum really uh, drives that point home. So can you walk me through a little bit about uh, how you bring a bike from concept to finished product, and specifically how the BMC facility uh, contributes to that uh, process? Because like I said, the museum is just the first touching, touch point and in the facility, and it, it gives you that history, but from there, you enter this sort of this incredible uh, facility with the Impact Lab and um, all the things that you can do to take those historical elements um, and, and understand how they played a part in the development of past bikes and take them through a new development to a new bike. Um, talk to me about that process and how BMC approaches it in sort of a unique way. Yeah, I mean, ideas for f- new bikes, they, they can come up from, from many different uh, areas. It can be commercial opportunities. It can be, uh, yeah, single people who have an idea which uh, through their riding passion, they believe 
this is something that would benefit my right and uh, probably I think this is where we are unique in the in the yeah facilities we have because we have a prototype lab where really if someone has an idea we have shown and we are very convinced that we can we can turn this uh, idea into a prototype that can actually validate the, the feasibility or the idea within a super short time and we have a number of very talented people that um, they always find the right way to make the prototype i would say just as good as it has to be to validate uh, a certain idea and so usually within two to four weeks uh, after the idea we are yeah, we are on the track or on the road to to validate uh, this concept. And it was actually, I would say, not really a strategic move at the beginning, this, this uh, impact lab. It was uh, kind of created out of the leftovers from the production we had in Switzerland. So we had all the equipment, we had the expertise and the people. And when we shut down the production facility because it was just not uh, covering the cost we, we thought what what do we do with it what do we do with all this know-how and the cnc machine and the lamination room and all this so uh, yeah the impact lab was born and that was born from the impact uh, bike correct impact uh, frame production mm -hmm. yeah. And, yeah which was which was produced uh, in your headquarters in grinchen um and and so all that equipment basically was left over and allowed you to create prototypes as necessary. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, and and from there on, then really we we realized uh, that it's a strategic tool because um, yeah, things like micro travel technology, the MTT, um, is something that I think without building prototypes ourselves uh, with all the layup for the change days and everything we would not have been able to find an outside supplier who yeah who is convinced of the idea and it's always much easier once you have something in your hands to go to go to a supplier and ask them uh, yeah can we talk about this is this something you can do and of course you don't want to do a prototype you want to want to produce uh, multiple bikes right, right. So. now you also have uh, a pretty unique setup in Grinchen, uh, right across the street from the headquarters is a, a velodrome. Uh, how does that factor into, do you, do you use that facility to test prototypes uh, or is it more of a uh, head out into the hills of Switzerland situation? I think it's a, it's a dual opportunity. Of course, one on one side, it is when it really comes to racing products and uh, then I, I'm talking about road racing products. Um, it is for sure a testing testing facility that we use, whether it's for our own uh, developments or together with the teams uh, that come here or individual riders. It's it's a great great uh, yeah it's a great track. It's 250 meters, which really allows for for very good testing, reliable testing. So uh, this is just uh, yeah a pillar in our performance testing. But moreover, I think uh, it has become 
one more discipline for all of us who are passionate uh, riders. And as, as, as you could imagine, sometimes winter in Switzerland is uh, not only dark, but it's also cold and it's not so bicycle friendly. And especially on those days, it's just great to spin your legs, even if it's just 45 minutes over lunch. And uh, yeah, sometimes uh, ideas are born uh, on the track. Yeah, yeah. Just a bit of sanity in the in the dark winter. <laughs> um, you know, I'm curious, does the, you know, when you prototype a, a bike or a frame and you're able to create that uh, prototype, um, does, I mean, I assume it doesn't just go straight from idea to prototyping. I mean, there's there's got to be some some CFD involved, and is that correct? I mean, CFD for those of you listening is computational fluid dynamics, and it basically is um, putting the parameters of that frame into a computer to understand how it will react to certain forces and certain um, uh, uh, airflow things like that. Um, so what is, what are the what are the steps between idea and prototype so when it when it comes to uh, i would say laminate design and really final frame design and shapes yeah we are we are heavily using uh, computer tools whether this is cfd uh, or fem um, which of course then uh, yeah we we just benefit from this as kind of a virtual prototyping you know we can run many, many loops um, that, of course, are faster than if for every iteration you would build a, a physical prototype. So I would say in the in the space of uh, uh, aerodynamics, in the space of structural strength and stiffness, it's it's uh, those tools that have taken over from the, the physical prototyping. Nevertheless, once those steps are done and the, the the virtual design of a new product is done. We we do a prototype and, and we we test it. But um, I would say the Impact Lab um, often plays a role when it's about functional uh, prototyping. Uh, so yeah, but all this together, um, I think what we what we have developed over the time is a good good expertise as well to understand which kind of prototyping and calculation do we need to get to the validation step as quickly as possible? And, uh, yeah, it's, I want to, I want to talk about the impact lab in just a moment, but I have one quick question before we jump into that, which is a lot of, uh, manufacturers in recent years have relied heavily upon, uh, 3d printing because it, it has in just in recent years has gotten a little bit, it's gotten a lot more feasible to use. It's quicker, um, you can build a lot of prototypes fairly quickly. Do you, does that factor into your uh, prototyping processes? Do you use 3D printing at massively, all? Massively, yeah, massively. <laughs> and uh, actually, it's it's uh, it took quite some time until uh, I was convinced myself to to buy a 3D printing machine because we had honestly we had very easy access to outside uh, 3D printing companies and. So we were we are 3D printing for for many many years, just not internal. But now, since a bit more than a year, we have a printer uh, inside. Now it's even two. And uh, honestly, uh, I didn't expect it, but basically they are running day and night. And it's it's really 
it's really great for the for the prototyping but also during the commercial realization uh, phase of a, of, a, of a design you know today on e-bikes for instance there's many covers and plastic parts and for this it's just great to have uh, those things on the bike before you go in in the investment of a of a expensive injection molding tool and things like that so it's it's really great and so from there uh you know there i there's steps in between but then you know the impact lab uh handles a lot of that uh testing um beyond the the fluid dynamics aspects that we talked about now for those of you who who are having trouble picturing the impact lab um, one of the rooms that has always stuck out in my mind, having visited the facility, was there's this this room where there's these uh, the you know these frames are mounted in jigs, and they're moving constantly over and over again. So they're they're testing the frame to see uh, how much movement it can take, how how many uh, you know flexes until failure, things like that. It's a really fascinating uh, place to see. Um, once you get into the impact lab. Steve, can you talk a little bit about the process, uh, how you take a brand new prototype and say, okay, we're going to give this the impact lab treatment. What's the process like there? Yeah, the, you're talking about uh, the test lab side of the, of the impact lab, which plays a, a tremendous uh, role. So every prototype that, that we write, uh, before we write it, uh, we are qualifying the and quantifying actually the all the parameters that we can whether it's uh, weight whether it's stiffness whether it's precision and geometry details this is all taken um, so when we write it we can actually do the the association between what we measure and what we feel and this is, I think, where a big part of the experience that, that we all have uh, on BMC side uh, comes together. Because when you design a new product, uh, at one point you have to put down numbers that you want to achieve. Um, and the numbers is usually not the first thing we have in mind. What we have in mind is a certain riding behavior or a certain feel. And with all the experience we have, it's then quite easy to correlate uh, this feeling with number and measurable targets. So there, the test lab plays a huge role, and we are we are testing frames really in, let's say, every physical um, development stage that we go from the very first product to the pilot run. Uh, even in on, from the final production, we always take frames to see how consistent uh, the performance values are. So. It's it's very fundamental. You know, once once things uh, get out of the impact lab and, and have sort of been validated and go to manufacturing, um, it's it's interesting to me as a consumer to have to uh, measure the the differences between a BMC and another brand, or even just a BMC against another BMC. So, for example, um, I currently have in my garage here. Uh, a Road Machine 012, uh, which is a beautiful bike. And you also have this Masterpiece MPC, which BMC very quietly released about, what, about a year ago, maybe a little bit more. Um, and, and this Masterpiece MPC is very intriguing to me. Um, it seems like sort of a, 
an engineer's dream. <laughs> and, and I'm curious, uh, this, it's, it's basically, you know, the, you guys call it the masterpiece. So it's supposed to be this, this halo product, um, that is perfect. Essentially. If I'm going to go from this road machine, Oh one, two, which by the way is a phenomenally wonderful ride to this masterpiece. Are there things I'm going to notice, or is this more of a, um, you know, you noticed differences in the lab and that's what makes it so quote unquote perfect. I mean, it, it explained to me once that came out of the impact lab, how you knew that's the masterpiece. Yeah. I mean, as you, as you call it out, masterpiece is really a engineering dream. And it's something that we have strived for, for many years. And uh, it has two, that has two sides. One clearly is the performance. And I think this is what you will notice, of course, when you, when you go on the bike, um, in this case, the performance aspect that you will notice compared to the bike you were mentioning the, the road machine, uh, is primarily the weight because we were shooting actually for, for same, uh, stiffness and compliance behavior as our uh, standard rope machine. So all rope machine, actually, they have a very similar uh, riding behavior from a, let's say stiffness and compliance uh, point of view. Of course, then the weight difference, uh, you will feel, we all know this, uh, light rope bikes, uh, you, you feel differences uh, quite easily. But what really makes a masterpiece very unique is that it is a frame that you take out of the mold and it is done. So every fiber uh, that you see in the end was exactly laid down on, on the surface of this frame like that and was untouched. So we do not use any finishing. There is no, there's no sanding, there's no clear coat, there's nothing like that. And that also means that we have to produce this frame as a as a one piece construction. Typically, uh, frames are made out of uh, front triangle. Then you add the rear frame to it. You bond this together, um, sand it, uh, and then there's the painting step. And masterpiece is really produced in in one shot. So it's a one piece frame. There's no connections, and the fact that we can produce this quality that doesn't need any, let's say, uh, yeah, finishing steps also means that all the fibers, every layer of this frame is exactly in the position that, uh, that we want to have it uh, to be. And yeah, I would say it's as much, uh, engineering stream in terms of how it writes, but also uh, how it's produced. And I think once you have the opportunity to see such a frame in life, you immediately see that this is something very, very special because it's clearly distinguished from, from what we all know uh, out in the market. Yeah. Now, I guess is the MPC, because it is so meticulously constructed, is it, is it constructed by hand or is it a machine constructed frame? No, it's actually, yeah, it's constructed by, by a master. <laughs> okay. So I would say there is very few people, uh, who actually can do such a frame and we are producing in a small facility. We can only produce few frames per week. It's very, very limited. 
due to the fact that it's really one person uh, making the entire frame, which is quite unique. Usually there is many, many people uh, or many, many hands uh, frame goes through. In this case, it's really uh, typically it's one person who is producing uh, one frame. Are those made in Grenchen? No, we make them actually in uh, Germany. Germany, okay. And now BMC, I, I remember you have, uh, you weave, you were weaving your own carbon for a while. You had a, a big loom, correct? And, and you could weave your own carbon fibers. Are you still doing that? And does that factor into the build of the MPC? No, we have given up on the, on the big uh, weaving machine. Um, multiple reasons it was uh, we require a big output to have it uh, economically uh, efficient and uh, then as a second point it's clear that with today's weight targets of let's say seven to eight hundred grams for a frame uh, woven uh, tubes uh, cannot compete with the lay down uh, pre-prec frames so it's performance, but also cost that uh, let us uh, move away from this from this uh, technology. On the other hand, the, the the braiding process is a great process if you want to automize your production. But for this, um, yeah, we are just we don't have the quantities to to do this. Now, just uh, one last question for you, Stifu, is um, you know. We, Every year we see a limited number of frames get released by manufacturers. How many how many uh, ideas actually do you take from concept to um, prototype? I mean, is it, you know, 10 ideas per year, 100 ideas per year, and then you prototype them and see how they work to get to that one bike that gets launched per year? Um, how many, about how many, how much is... I guess what I'm asking is how involved is this process of prototyping? Are you constantly prototyping or is it just a set to a limit, limited number of ideas per year? The limits are given by our capacity and by the number of people we have. But uh, I can tell you um, many of uh, my team members, they, they are doing night shifts to realize their ideas and to prototype them. Typically, I would say there's a certain room and and uh, time allocated uh, to do prototypes, but I think all of us, once we have an idea, and as as you know, ideas are not coming in a in a regular pace. Sometimes you have three three together, and then for three months you're kind of starving. So uh, I would say, as a as an overall quota, we could say that. Um, Probably every fourth, fourth to fifth idea that we have is one that we um, go further to then think about the commercial product. So, yeah, in all honesty, we have many ideas that that, that do not make it to commercial uh, products. That could be for functional reason that it something doesn't work. Also, in many cases, it's pure cost uh, driven. Um, but yeah, there are also ideas that we take up uh, two years later. We remember, hey, back in the day we did this, uh, and we can recombine thing and things. And I think this is this is then where it's really great. And uh, yeah, combining technologies, uh, I think this is also a benefit of, of developing and doing the innovation in house. This is then very easy. And I think 
in the near future, we will see some products that are combinations of things that we have already done. Very cool. That's that's sort of that's a neat way to to you know take the best elements of the last several years of of development and combine them into something that's you know brand new. That's pretty fascinating. Um, we're going to take a quick break here, and when we get back, uh, I will be speaking with uh, Ruler Magazine's very own Peter Stewart uh, to get some perspective uh, of what he and I have seen on our many, many uh, tours of various manufacturing facilities. Steve, thanks for joining me today, and for the rest of you, please sit tight. We'll be right back. So my name is Oren Peleg, and I'm an investor in Lekker. Three things that really caught my eye. The first one is, is they're looking to change the insurance industry, which is a very large industry and I think needs change. The second thing is, is I'm deeply passionate about getting people onto wheel. We need to address our congestion and pollution crisis and I believe that two wheels have a massive role to play in that. And the third thing is, I can see a growing trend around companies building on the strong communities that they have. And I think Lacquer's business model in the way they tap into the community of cyclists is something that's very much on trend at the moment. Why, hello there. Podcast interruption alert, but I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as £6 per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, Orla Shinaway, and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is, all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication. Go to ruler.cc. I'll leave you to it. We are back with the Ruler Tech podcast, and we just spent a lot of time hearing about BMC's uh, facilities in Grenchen, Switzerland, and how that sort of leads to a better product for BMC's consumers. Uh, and that's that's from their perspective. And it is all very interesting. It's all very cool. Um, and it seems to work for them. Now, there's other brands out there, and they're doing things differently. Um, I have been fortunate over the course of my career to visit a lot of those facilities, as has Peter Stewart, who is on the line now, uh, all the way from London. Peter, how's it going? I'm good, thanks, Dan. Uh, how are you? I'm well. I'm well. Well, a little sniffly, but I'm okay. <laughs> uh, but Peter, you and I have both been to I would say a fair a fair bit of of uh, manufacturing facilities for bicycles, uh, and you know one of the things that I've gleaned from going to all these places is that every company does things a little different in terms of development, testing, uh, and things like that. In your experience uh, going to some of these facilities, because you've been to quite a few as well, uh, what stands out to you in terms of what everybody is doing similarly? Uh, across the board in manufacturing and what are people doing differently when it comes to R&D, testing and things like that? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I've been to literally dozens of factories and assembly facilities and uh, sometimes feels like school trips going out there with those journalists and being hoarded around like different kind of, you know, spindles for making wheels and uh, hot presses for making frames. And yeah, it's actually pretty interesting um, how similar lots of them are. And it's I always enjoy seeing when someone does something slightly differently. And, you know, the, the normal 
expectation most people have is that uh, you know these things are made with carbon fiber, you know, like glued, you know, obviously then uh, put together in in segments and then in a monocoque kind of uh, press. And a lot of people think that then goes into an autoclave, but the autoclave process is relatively rare. Usually, it's a it's a hot metal press that compresses it offers the, the pressure that makes the frame, uh, which is actually a pretty good way to do it. And that's why it's the most common way of doing it. And that's why in the Far East, where the vast majority of the world's bicycles are made. That's what they do every single time. But definitely Impact was a great example of where you see something really different, which was the big um, resin transfer molding process that Look also use. Um, and, you know, as kind of discussed in the kind of by BMC, that was a really interesting process that offered them a lot of insight into the R&D. And effectively looked like a big stargate and they kind of weave through these carbon threads into a sock that then had resin pumped through it. And, um, yeah, it's very elaborate. And uh, I think it was interesting... I think I used to think that that was a better way of doing it than other ways, but I don't think there's a better way or a worse way. It's just different kind of processes to reach the same end. Um, so yeah, seeing that manufacturing process from different facilities and different brands does really offer you a lot more kind of appreciation of the sport and the sports products we have because it is an expensive and very like engineering heavy process. Um, and then equally, you know, a lot of people like Canyon do something very different where their real expertise comes from logistics and they're just getting the frames in to Germany and that's a facility that's really impressive but really it's an assembly facility but done so much better than anything I've seen from any other brand and yeah I'm always fascinated to see the inside workings of different brands like that from all elements whether it's paint or actual manufacturing or R&D or you know carbon kind of rapid prototyping so yeah it's an interesting process and I think the um Definitely, it's uh, it's come on light years from where we were, you know, 15, 20 years ago. It's I think it is a really high tech trade now. Yeah, and I think I think you hit on something really important there, which is that a lot of manufacturing across the board for all these manufacturers is really streamlining processes so that they can do this uh, faster uh, with less cost, things like that. And so, you know, Trek is another great example of that in Waterloo, Wisconsin. They've got all their facilities are are honed to a point where everything's very efficient. They've got assembly lines, they've got wheel builders all in the same big room, you know, to get everything out the door quickly. Custom paint is just down the hall. Um, But to that end, I've also been to some facilities where it's one guy in a garage, you know, uh, doing every aspect of it. Um, And that's, that can lead to a product that's just as good. Um, But I think in terms of scale, um, you've got a vast difference between those small builders and what Trek or BMC or Canyon is doing. Um, but beyond that, what I find intriguing, you know, I've been to BMC's uh, headquarters in Grenchen, uh, as I think you have as well. And, um, I've been to Trek, uh, and what I find notable about both of those places is that, um, you know, in, in Grenchen, as we mentioned in the podcast earlier today, um, they have a, a velodrome across the street, you know, for real world testing. They can just walk across the street and pedal prototypes or walk outside. And and Trek in the same fashion has, you know, a cyclocross course right out their front door in on, on the grounds of Trek's headquarters. Um, how do you feel about those sort of practical um, approaches to testing? I mean, do you, do you think that lends anything different to, say, prototyping something and then, you know, getting a, a, a product out with just, you know, whatever wheels are lying around and then going for a bike ride wherever. Um, do you think there's an advantage to having that controlled sort of course, you know, in, in BMC's case, it's the velodrome. Um, is there, is there, is there a, a benefit to that? 
Yeah, I think uh, again, actually, most most bike brands that are really successful do have that backyard that is, you know, it might be like Villiers with the, you know, um, the kind of Passano del Grappa region, you know, all these climbs out the back of it, and you know, uh, you know, all these bike brands in Milan that have the Stelvio within touching distance. Um, I think, yeah, and I don't know many brands that make a success of it without having people based there that do a lot of riding of the product. I think it's worth saying, I think sometimes it is to the detriment of some products because I think there's an old kind of understanding that a lot of Italian frames and actually I'd say maybe Californian manufactured frames are, are just a bit too harsh uh, for, for, for British roads and for many roads across the world because they're used to testing them on these beautifully paved Italian roads or these Californian roads and, you know, like the, the, the specialised uh, original Venge you know, it was probably great in Morgan Hill. I've ridden on the roads there and it's smooth. And, you know, there's the specialized lunch ride, which is another example right. of, you know, the backyard kind of testing process. But um, actually, the specialized lunch ride, yeah, I should probably explain yeah. that because that's worth talking about, which is that a lot of the guys go out every lunch <laughs> and they race each other. Well, they're meant to go on a 40K loop, but it is just a flat out race the specialized guys do. Right. And I did it once. I'm like, there's guys on rollers beforehand. It's not just a lunch ride. They're properly warming up. <laughs> they're, <nutrient. laughs> they're, they're like fully fueled. They're ready to go. And it's like absolutely from the gun. They're out. And I think yeah. the Thursday is the most prestigious one. I think winning like a Thursday lunch ride at Specialized, you're like a made man. Like you've got a salary yeah. for life there. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. You become CEO exactly. the next so, day. Um, but, um, but yeah, that process I think is really good for like feeding in that passion and making products that cyclists just love. But at the same time, there is sometimes a bike design for like a certain terrain that doesn't fit with some consumers that are based in areas where roads are rougher or climbs are steeper or any of that kind of stuff. So yeah, um, yeah I find I find that kind of personal first person testing really crucial and it's the flip side of that is your brands that's designed too numerically and design around wind tunnel results and you know uh, mm -hmm. tour magazine tests and a lot of time you know you get given these bikes for review and like this is the best bike in the world apparently but it just isn't that much fun to ride and you're like well it's not a very good bike in my opinion and that's i think when that comes through that process that hasn't been honed by people that really love the sport riding it day in day out during the development yeah and i, and I think that's you know there are brands that are are pretty um ingenious with the ways they, they get around some of those things. Like for example, and, and I keep going back to Trek because, um, that was the last facility I was at was, uh, in Wisconsin, but they actually built this machine in house to replicate, uh, Roubaix cobbles. And so they, what they did was they actually went to Roubaix and they took a mold of, uh, the, the cobbles on the Arenberg. And they brought that mold back to Wisconsin and they created this track on a, like a treadmill sort of thing. And it mirrored those cobbles and they actually hang a rider from a harness and they can ride on the cobbles on this treadmill. Um, so that's, that's a pretty ingenious way to get around that. Is it the same thing? Not really, but does it get them the data they need? Yeah. Um, but again, you know, some small builder in the middle of nowhere is, is not going to have the budget for something like that, but they could make a product that's just as good. Um, so, you know, the, the, the manufacturing processes and the, and the R and D, uh, engineers just have to be very creative and really ingenious to, to come to the end of, of a product cycle and say, okay, we've created something that we think is going to work. Um, because you can do all the rides you want up, up, you know, the Stelvio, uh, in the prototyping phase. But like you said, how does it ride in the middle of, uh, New York state? You know, um, that's a, that's a variable. Yeah. I think control. that's interesting. I think that. Yeah, I often think about those standalone builders that do that building it in their garage. You know, Bob Parlay was one, and uh, a guy in the UK, Richard Craddock, 
um, he makes filament bikes and that's like just done in his garage. And I think both of them had a similar process where they made an autoclave type thing out of like insulated foam. And I always find it like quite surreal to think of that first ride they take on it to be like, you built this and you literally it's just carbon fiber could completely fall apart. It must be so nerve wracking. But, um, but yeah, that, that, that process is interesting. I think you're right. There's, there's more beyond like, and I think Trek's a good example actually, because I've seen at the Trek facility, certainly when I visited it, they had quite a big, uh, part of their manufacturing testing there was on um, looking at how the technicians would lay up the bike given the, the instructions they were given in the, the layup schedule and um, seeing where they made mistakes and that's a really interesting thing I think where you're like the manufacturing isn't just about how brilliant the bike's designed or like how much the user might like it but how reliably made can it be when you're making 15,000 of them which I find like a super interesting part of bike design because it's almost so dull that no one thinks about it but you're like yeah you know you could design the best bike in the world but if, if this person in you know in Wisconsin or China or Taiwan just can't make it work when they're forcing this bit of carbon fiber thread into a panel of of you know an, of a mold it's going to be a, a bad bike because it's going to fail or it's not going to be you know as stiff as it's meant to be so yeah, uh, it's interesting. And then that, that feedback process, you know, of whether they ride it themselves or their relationship with their customers and dealers and journalists, of course, it's, um, yeah, it's a complex, uh, complex structure. <laughs> yeah. And one thing I will note that, that I think is probably the most valuable aspect of both the BMC facility in Grenchen and also the Trek facility in Waterloo. And I've, I've never been to Morgan Hill, which is strange. I've never been to specialized, uh, so I don't know if they have this as well, but um, at, in B, at BMC and in Trek, they have a museum, essentially, of their old bikes um, that pros have, you know, ridden and had success on. They have that more. And you as look well. at some of the, <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course. I mean, I, I would be shocked if they didn't. Yeah, and and I think that's probably the most valuable tool in both of these facilities is to be able to go back and see what worked, what didn't, how did we change, what was the evolution like, and what have we learned since then. To have that frame of reference has got to be invaluable, especially with bigger companies where engineers come and go. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, some of these places, these engineers have probably been around for decades, but some maybe this is their first job. And so they need to have that historical perspective. Um, so to, to be able to walk through and, and handle these bikes and feel them and see them and, and note, you know, different uh, uh, evolutions of, of frame design. I mean, that must be so invaluable for these companies. Um, so perhaps that's an advantage over smaller builders that, that these bigger companies do have. Um, and, and specifically brands like BMC that has been around a long time and has had so much success at the world tour level. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, it's interesting that you say that, actually, because it does remind me of the fact that I think a lot of modern bike designers do forget the historic historic design efforts that are made. Like, not that many people know that much about the history of bike design. And you do see things come around and people people laud them as being, like, the first of their kind. And you're like, no, that, they did that, like, 35 years ago, and it was rubbish. And you think, right. like, you know, yeah. I mean, like, you know, a road bike suspension, you know, I don't think is, 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 is rubbish yeah. now, but it is definitely something that people do get really excited about and act as if it's a brand new invention. You're like, no, this, this real, right. the same exact thing, you know, like Moots YBB, you know, that when Pinarello had their, um, I forget what they called the unit, the DSS one, I think it was the exact same yeah. thing. It's the YBB. And it mm -hmm. was like this Moots did this like 15 years ago for road bikes and you know, right. yeah. go yeah. buy that unit and see how that works. You know, it's just funny. And, right. Um, right. 
Yeah, definitely. Similarly, actually, I remember Rota when they launched their hydraulic group set. They were like, this is the first hydraulic group set ever. And I was like, no, it is not. <laughs> I was like, Shimano did the in-flight years and years ago. And they, you know, that was for downhill. Right. But it's just funny. I think people just right. don't realize the legacy that comes behind a lot of time in, in development. And yeah, within a brand, I guess that's so important when you're like, well, how does the how does the lineage of the original tarmac play into the modern tarmac? And um, yeah, I think it's, it's super important. And I think it's it's why, again, those old brands, there's a lot of value to them because they do have that legacy of having success product year in year out and that feedback from users and consumers and retailers and everyone and i think it's important to note that in those those um, museums of bikes not every one of those bikes was a success uh you know and not all the feedback they got was good and and that's just as valuable you know learning from that uh, so you know you have this you have this reference basically this this encyclopedia of bikes where you can say okay that worked this didn't let's go with this or maybe this would work now that we have this other thing that developed after that you know um so there's just a lot of perspective to be gleaned there i think yeah i think the, the impact is um, a good example actually of that because i think uh i think it was a really successful bike in its time and a really nice bike but i think it was probably ahead of its time and it had this kind of super rigid and very well engineered um like concept behind it but maybe it was a time people ran 23 millimeter tires so it might have been a super rough ride i mean i never actually got to ride one so i don't know but um but you know they were very popular they sold out all the time so it's not we don't want to criticize them but definitely it's something that you think yeah could be more successful if it was brought out today absolutely i mean think about like the mavic electronic group sets way back in the day you know ahead of their time you know uh, we now almost all of us ride electronic group sets or wireless group sets and they did it way back when and it just never caught on and there was there was just things at that point that they didn't know. Um, and over time it was improved and now it works, but, uh, you know, they were just well ahead of their time and couldn't pull it off. So that's, that's a, a good frame of reference for, for how development works over time anyway. Um, could I ask actually, Dan, have you so, ever been you know, to, uh, have you ever been to like a, a far Eastern manufacturing facility? Like, I haven't. Yeah. No, I've not either. I was cause... supposed to go. Yeah. I was supposed to go to Taiwan, uh, just before COVID hit. Oh, on the giant uh, trip. I was sorry. going to do that as well. I think. Yeah. yeah. I was meant to go there. Yeah. Because they were, they were opening a brand new facility, and that would have been my first uh, facility that I would have visited there, and I was really excited to look at it. Um, I got invited once to a tire facility in Th- Thailand, and I, I didn't get to go to that one either. But I think for for perspective, I would love to do something like that for sure. Yeah, because that's uh, that mass manufacturing I think the, we just don't see. Because even like Trek right. with Wisconsin, it's a huge facility, but they only make like a couple of hundred bikes a year there, and it's it's massive. Yeah. But then you get the idea that yep. these vast warehouses you actually need for making thousands of bikes at different scale and size. Yep, yep, yeah, that would be a good uh, that would be a good um, perspective trip for us. I think maybe we should set something like that up. Uh, Peter, uh, this has been pretty fascinating stuff, and you know I'd like to thank BMC obviously for sharing some of their uh, processes with us. And that's always fascinating to learn. Um, if you all have questions, you can always reach out to us. Uh, I, I am reachable on the social media via at Brown Tie Dan. Peter, where can they reach you and Rulure? You can reach me on uh, Instagram or Twitter at Peter Stewart 3 S-T-U-A-R-T. And you can reach Rulure through every social media channel, except for TikTok. We're not on that yet. But we're always <laughs> Rulure or Rulure Magazine, one word. So uh, yeah, reach out to us, comment, share, like, message we'll try to do our best to respond yeah and we'd love to hear from you what you thought about this episode and and obviously if you have uh you know topics you'd like us to cover on this podcast we would absolutely love to hear it uh, i for one am always a fan of when people do my work for me so please tell me what you would like to hear us uh, babble on about uh peter thanks for for joining me to to chat about this it's uh, fun as always you too much appreciated all right we'll talk soon thank you all for listening
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.